Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Hi everyone, it's Han from Full of Beans. This week I'm joined by Vanessa Yim, David Villajone and Lynn Roberts. Vanessa is a clinical psychologist, David is a consultant clinical psychologist and Lynn is a former patient from the ward that participated in the study. The study looked at patients' experiences of clinical team meetings or ward rounds in an adult inpatient setting with the aim of improving clinical team meetings in order to give patients advocacy in their treatment, as well as weighing up different things like making them more personable and incorporating the patient's individual needs in order to make a treatment formulation that will work for them. As ever, there is mention of eating disorder behaviours, so if this isn't something that you want to listen to right now, please do know that this podcast will be here for when you are ready. With that in mind, let's get on with the podcast with Vanessa, David and Lynn. Woohoo! Here we are. Um, what a journey, what a journey to get here. <laughs> um, but so nice, so nice to see you all. And I think sometimes when you have like a bit of an issue at the start of a podcast, it actually calms everyone's nerves because you're just distracted by, okay, how do we get this technology working? Um <laughs> So yeah, it's lovely to to meet you all. I wondered if to start with, you just wanted to kind of go around and introduce yourself and maybe your role in the study and, and how you got involved in the study as well. Yeah, sounds good. Um, should I kick us off then? Yeah. Um, so I'm Vanessa and I'm now a clinical psychologist um, working in an eating disorder service. Um, this project was my part of my declin psych thesis um so um when I was doing my doctorate degree in clinical psychology in Oxford and the setting was um an inpatient adult uh unit um for eating disorders thanks Vanessa my name is David I'm a consultant clinical psychologist um so I worked in Oxford and I was part of the whole project of developing and changing the ward um, and the whole unit that we were, you know, the, the way we did things in terms of the treatments we offer and also the ward rounds. Um, and I'm since then I've left and I'm now with another organisation. And I was also Vanessa's supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Lynn um, and I was an inpatient uh where I met David and through whom I met Vanessa um in a hospital in Oxford from about February 2020 till July 2020. Brilliant thank you well it's so nice to have you all here and I honestly feel so I don't know normally when I you know do this kind of thing talk to people about their research it's with one person so it's really nice to have such a range of perspectives um which I think would be so interesting for this podcast so to start us off, you know, you've given a bit of a detail about yourselves, but we've mentioned the study in passing. What was the study that you did? And maybe if you want to give some background on the study and then what your aims were and, and why that was really important for an inpatient setting. 
Yeah, sure. So maybe each of us can um, chip in. And maybe for me personally, um, we had to do a service related project um, for our thesis. And then I remember before I got onto uh, training, I went to shadow a ward round in another eating disorder inpatient unit. And I remember going into, I think, five or six ward round meetings. And afterwards, everyone was crying. Um, like all the patients were crying during the ward round. I was like really shocked and was thinking like, oh, why was that? Like, we shouldn't be doing this to our patients. So I was really curious to see how we can improve patients' experience of ward rounds. And then I started looking into different types of research on this topic, and I found quite distinct methods being used. So like in the late 70s and 80s, they do they did a lot of observational studies around what rounds, how many people were there, like how many minutes each person spoke. Um, and then in the like 2000s, the kind of studies became more qualitative in nature and they started doing surveys around understanding people's experience, like staff and patients' experience. But none of them kind of used both methods at the same time. And then also none of them that I found had patients being involved in the design and analysis of the study. So I was kind of thinking, okay, it would be great to do something that kind of incorporate both staff and patients' experience, but also use both observational methods and also the kind of qualitative side of things. And then I met David and we kind of had really similar ideas. And at that time, she, he was kind of trying to improve the ward environment and his service. So maybe I can let him share how the project came about from his perspective. Yeah, thank you. So we um, we tried to base our model at, in Oxford on a, another model that was developed in Italy um, by Riccardo della Grave and his team. And this new approach that they followed for inpatient units had really good outcomes. Um, and it was a process where they tried to make patients far more at the center of the treatment and, and for patients to be actively involved in their treatment. And it was also based on a cognitive behavioral therapy approach. So I think it's probably fair to say that in the UK, um, most inpatient units are very eclectic, which that means, you know, different clinicians may use different models. So your dietitian might be working in one way, the psychologist might be following a CBT way, but the next psychologist a psychodynamic approach, the consultant psychiatrist might be using another approach, the family therapist another approach. So. So there were constant changes and no uniform model, you know, typically in inpatient units. So we wanted to develop a model that was uniform so that all the staff effectively used the same language, but also that patients were basically educated in the model so that they can also understand their difficulties in, a, in an integrated way. Um, so it, it was an integrated approach that we wanted to develop, but also an approach that gave a comprehensive understanding of the patient's difficulties. So, so if you think about eating disorders, typically patients with eating disorders have issues with body image. I think we can probably recognize that. But every patient is, is really unique. So some patients may have you know, a variety of dietary rules. They may struggle some with emotional regulation. Some may have issues with perfectionism or self-esteem and identity. Some patients may have a, have a trauma history. The reality is every patient is completely unique. So we wanted to develop, we call it the formulation. So a comprehensive understanding of, of every patient's difficulties and then develop the treatment plan based on that understanding of the patient. And I think the other thing we know is that patients don't want to tell their stories again and again and again. 
and that often happens when clinicians leave or also when you hand over, let's say, back to the community team. So, and even as, as an inpatient unit, we almost had to assess from the beginning. So we wanted to have an, an approach that was seamless across clinicians and across teams. And then for this framework, I suppose, also to inform our ward rounds. Um, and I think the essence was that, that patients should be far more involved. So historically, ward rounds are very, they came from a medical model, let's say in physical, let's say a cardiac unit or a kidney unit um, or a cancer unit, so which is very medical. But the reality is eating disorders are also very psychological. So we wanted to make our ward rounds far more psychological in terms of treatment and understanding. And again, you know, eating disorders are fascinating because it's it's a marriage between mind and body. So you have to think about both. So we wanted to bring both components into the into the ward rounds. And then also, I think by giving patients more agency, they, they get more control. So and control is so important. And I think the outcomes and the, the patient experience is much better if they feel they have a sense of control and that they actually contribute to, to the ward around themselves rather than things that's being told to them. I don't know if you want to say something else from a patient perspective, Lynn. It's interesting hearing your explanation of the model and which I feel is kind of like the ideal rather than I don't know how how long the model had been kind of integrated in at Cotswold House when I was there, but um, I'm quite vocal. Um, and also, I think I was probably older than um, uh, a lot of the other patients there were when I was there. So. But but even I felt intimidated at times. What what was it about the situation that made you feel intimidated on in that process? Um, I think the number of people and people who you'd either only ever see on the on the day of the ward round when you had the meeting or you would only ever see, I don't know, I saw the pharmacist once, for instance, she was in my very first um, ward round. And yeah, I so there's that. And there's also this this there's still this. I think there's this, still a um a difficulty between how much agency can a, a patient, especially when they're first admitted, actually have. I think probably not nothing. So, so I mean, my my first my first kind of what was known then as a, a CTM, um, which is you know ward round CTM. Um, I would say that was very traumatic. I felt I was being incarcerated and that I'd never get out of this prison if I'm honest. And it did take quite a few weeks, um, you know, partly because I was very ill, but partly from I just didn't. Yeah, I, I just didn't feel whatever I was saying was was not being listened to. It made me think about it when you were saying, David, about um, kind of, you know, the the classic approach has been a lot more of a medical approach, because let's say you were in hospital for something you know let's say like cancer you would just kind of listen to the doctor they would tell you what your treatment's going to be yeah. because at the end of the day they're the expert but then it also Lynn what you said about um maybe you know your age you being older than the other patients it's also then interesting to think about the element of age in that he's younger then the doctor may have more of a say over what their treatment is whereas as an adult you have that agency you know you are the one that makes decisions in life and 
part of the issue was that I was technically a voluntary patient, but I wasn't because there was no other, you know, option. And right. I think I think it took me a, a quite a few weeks to to get over that um, and to kind of understand, you know, it's kind of to get with program, if you like, to understand that that, you know, it's, it felt like the end of the world, but actually it was the beginning of a different world. And and I, I don't know whether I'm, you know, I don't suppose I'm unique in that. Um, but I do wonder whether something something can can be done to kind of ease that passage from doing doing what you want in a very eating disordered way but what feels like safety to, to being in a in a place that you feel is is just kind of a it's the opposite of safety uh, you know it's so helpful to hear and talk because these are the kind of things we were trying to address and it also highlights just the stage of you know of the admission obviously when patients come in sometimes they are very very unwell and it's also about the stage of recovery in terms of um, you know where people are in terms of how committed and motivated they are to change so that also sometimes fluctuates you know during the admission and then i think the other reality is it it, it, it can be very overwhelming so there could be 10 15 20 people in a room perhaps which just you know can be very very overwhelming um, especially if it's a big team the other dilemma is sometimes the more complex the patient, the more pay people needs to be in the room, if that makes sense, if they want to, to think collectively. But that can feel overwhelming. Um, and I know in Villa Garda, they, they try to re reduce the team to maybe four or five people maximum in the room and also sit around, the, they call it a round table. So it's literally a round table. So we didn't have a round table, but um, there were far more people than, than I suppose, the, the Italy model. I think it was the opposite of a round table, David, because everybody was sat. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, it felt like an execution room, I have to say, because it was like everybody was sat along a wall. Yeah, also bringing in the kind of COVID component where yeah. actually most of the professionals were not allowed to enter the ward. So it was actually lots of people on screen and then the patient and nurses was in the room. So that also maybe increased a sense of distance and not knowing the consultants or other professionals who were part of the treatment. Yeah, I suppose not having everybody in the same room, it can feel very um, out of touch. And just interesting that did when you were doing that over COVID, was it like a thing like now? So if I was the patient, let's say I would be able to see everybody's faces or was it sort of a the patient just felt like they were in the room with the nurse and then everybody was listening in. I think maybe it changed because I was in the, like the first wave of COVID. Um, it would be maybe a, the staff who were on that day, there might be a couple of nurses in the room physically and then there would be different kind of team members on screen. But it was difficult to see everybody at the same time. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, th I seem to remember that it was it was usually just the person speaking that you could see. Yeah, and I think it just highlights, you know, that was, you know, the pandemic, so we had to learn how to go hybrid overnight. So that was the other di dilemma. So you would have, thankfully, we did have a big screen, but I don't know it at the time whether everybody, initially, I don't think everybody could, could appear on the screen. And, and it, it changed during the pandemic. So initially, you know, we weren't allowed many people in a room, so it was only a few people and then many people on screen and then gradually that probably, you know, decreased some more people in the room. Um, 
but it was definitely challenging. It, it complicated things even more, I suppose. It almost made me think of, um, yeah, I've never been in this situation myself, but in a prison, you know, when you're being like interviewed in a prison thing and then there's people behind the mirror who can see you, but you can't see them. Um, it almost made me think of that in terms of like, you know, you're disclosing information that's very personal to you and you're not 100% sure like who's listening and stuff, which I can imagine would create quite a barrier to disclosing information and, and sort of the stuff you were talking about, which I did just want to ask before we go on for people that you know that are listening that maybe don't know what a ward round is or a clinical team meeting what sort of things are discussed within those meetings um, and who does tend to be involved in them so i think ward rounds happen all, all over the world probably every day of the of the week in hospitals all over the world so it is it is actually a really important meeting where all the clinicians all the people who work with the patient think come together and think about um basically the patient's treatment. So it's a place to think about the, the latest assessment results, you know, from any tests that were done. For patients, typically there would be an update on their weight or their blood tests. Um, but it's also an opportunity to hear from the nursing staff how it's going on the ward, from the dietitians, from the social worker, if there are kind of external factors that needs to be considered. It's an opportunity to hear from the family therapist, the psychologist. So it's a really important meeting. It's probably the only place where the whole team comes together. Um, to think about the patient, to think about, you know, how it's going, to think about the risks, to think about the treatment plan. So, like I said earlier, it's also about to think about the formulation. So, you know, what are the what are the key maintaining factors for the patient's eating disorder? Is it perfectionism? Is it self-esteem? But then also to think about the physical component, you know, in terms of their physical health and, and well-being. Um, and then... Like I say, historically, I think patients typically weren't included. Um, so when we, in, even in Oxford in 2014, patients weren't included in the ward round. So the team of professionals would meet and then somebody would deliver the message. So that was one of the things we wanted to change. And I think that was actually one of the, the great outcomes of Vanessa's piece of work is that, um, you know, patients had far more airtime effectively in, in, in the ward rounds than historically. Um, it gives a really nice overview actually of, of what the meeting involves and I just wanted to pick up more on sort of the patient involvement there because you kind of mentioned it before um, in terms of during somebody's treatment they're going to be at a different kind of cognitive capacity in terms of their involvement in their treatment and so I was just wondering like how you know does that change does that dynamic change throughout someone's treatment is it at the start you kind of have to take a, a hands-on approach and maybe patient has less involvement and then they become more responsible for kind of giving ideas about their treatment or how how have you started to navigate that now yeah so like i say you know patients come in at a variety of levels of, of being unwell so some could literally be at risk of you know of, of dying so whereas other patients would be informal and they would be committed to treatment. So so there's probably two components. The one is that on the one end, some patients might be physically very unwell, cognitively very unwell, um, and perhaps not able to make you know sound or decisions. But then the second component is the motivation to change. You know, so we know eating disorders is a lot about ambivalence. So whereas some patients may arrive and be admitted because they want to get better, 
some might be against their will even so they might be sectioned or they may be very ambivalent or even say i don't want to get better so it's kind of managing both those both those factors i suppose especially at the beginning of the of, of the admission you know that typically change over time but but that is challenging and then of course as, as professionals it's it's sometimes about keeping somebody alive so that mean that might mean taking decisions that the patient don't agree with at the time. How did you find it, Lynn, during your um, inpatient stay? Kind of, you said at the start that you know it took you three weeks or so to kind of get that cognitive ability back. Did you notice maybe more of a shift from the eating disorder being like, okay, we should suggest this in treatment to kind of your more, I guess, healthy mind, if we're going to call it that. How did that sort of progress for you during your treatment? I think I can remember the moment when I when I actually understood that there were like, you know, that there was a big conflict in me. And I think and that probably was at about three weeks in, I had to start having iron supplements and, and it was just it just felt like the final straw. Um, I was just weeping and then um, a member of staff came and 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 it was just like, oh, OK, so so this is where the eating disorder mindset comes in. I get it. Um, and I think that was probably. I mean, I wouldn't say a turning point, especially in motivation, because I was motivated, but but not enough to kind of go, go you know, just to kind of trust the pro pro process. But I would say from then it was more like. What other process have I got to trust? So that, and I think it was just really gradual seeing how weight restoration is is really, really hard, both physically and mentally. Um, but it's not so hard that you can't breathe or you can't move. You can move, you can breathe, you know, you can have a fairly okay day. You can have more fairly okay days until that becomes the norm. So, so yeah, and I think I just, I just, you know, I was I was very lucky with with the the staff who were there at the time, and and I trust. I, yeah, I think the main thing is I started to trust the program, and then once you do that, you you can you feel that you do have more. You can inform um, your your kind of treatment path, if you like. Yeah, and when you were speaking, then trust was something that came into my mind, and I was going to say you know, to, to all of you, like that level of trust, I guess in one respect, how important is that trust between a, a patient and a clinician? But also how, how do you go about developing that trust? Because I think, you know, eating disorders can very much twist things and every sort of, you know, thing that a clinician would be trying to do would be to promote the um, patient's health and the eating disorder be like no no don't listen to them don't listen to them so I can imagine that's quite a difficult thing in order to develop that level of trust between the client uh, the patient and the clinician I mean I, th I think maybe that's where Vanessa's um, research project that's one part of, of the kind of the whole jigsaw um, isn't it Vanessa in terms of having more patient involvement in CTMs, making them less, um, less, less anxiety provoking. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think the, I guess we can bring in the kind of CTM and ward round difference here probably, um, because when 
before my project, actually, um, there was a previous audit that was being done that um, patients probably feel like clinical team meetings, which is CTM, is a better language than saying ward rounds, which might give patients more agency um, in terms of speaking up or um, going into those meetings rather than that being something being done to them or like a message of their care being delivered to them. So what I was trying to do was actually, I think for research, it can be like a more objective and independent way to gauge their how they feel about um, what rounds or how they feel about the service because I'm someone who is independent to the service and they could share their honest feelings about what rounds to me and then I can be someone who kind of come in from like again a more objective angle into how we can improve this whole process for them so I think in some ways like maybe in terms of trust as a researcher I I had kind of done I was fortunate to be um, someone who's trustworthy so then they can share how they feel um, at that time to me and trust me in that I could potentially come up with or help them to explore some of the things and put the findings into something that's kind of maybe service improvement initiatives and things like that. I was going to ask you then what else do you think help patients to trust the therapist or clinicians? Gosh, that's a that's a difficult question, David. Yeah. Um, I think I don't know. I think I think to I think having confidence that um, the clinicians kind of understand where you're coming from, even if they don't agree with with what you want to do or or you know what what your mindset's like, but appreciating that. At that moment, that is your reality. You know, it's it's at that moment that's your reality that you're finding um, a situation or a meal or um, or talking about things really, really uncomfortable. And I'm being able to, so from a clinician's point of view, being able to appreciate that and maybe approach things in a in a different way. Um, it, but I think I think it's I think it's it's I don't know. I think it's also um, relationships with different um, different members of staff because everybody has different approaches. So, yeah, it's it's quite intangible. I think that. Yeah, but I suppose what you're saying is, do you think it's partly competence, part partly sort of the clinician, clinicians' experience? I think. But I think. The, but then... having, I think having like interest and and not feeling that you're, I don't know, you're you're just the next patient which you know I was we are I think those meetings because when when I was um an inpatient they had an out disproportionate importance in terms of um the week's event so um if if they were kind of more more involved with patients and this is this is pre Vanessa's um research then I think that would go a long way um, because it, it did it did feel at times that especially during covid i think because um you could you, you know there, you couldn't do a lot of the things that were involved in the kind of rehabilitation process if i can use that word as in um visit the outside world be off the the grounds of the hospital so so it did it did feel a lot like okay this is weight restoration 
um, and we 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 had kind of formulation groups with with David and um, so yeah, I think I think I think the CTMs are pretty important in setting up that that kind of trust and and kind of team approach to your treatment rather than than you following somebody else's like this is what's going to happen, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. And can I ask, do you think the formulation helped you to feel understood and therefore that you could trust the team or the clinicians? I mean, it certainly it certainly made me like exploring it. It made me understand that that things I thought was on what well, I was on top of or that just weren't an issue actually were an issue. Um, yeah, so so. I, I don't know. I'd say more. It was it was very helpful in in helping me understand myself. And I think if you under you know the more you understand yourself, the more you can you can say what you feel you need. So it's not it's not kind of so much like detection work on the on the part of the clinicians. Yeah, I was just thinking. You know, when we're talking about trust and and things like that, I think something that kind of came to my mind is the importance and I think you kind of highlighted it then of getting to know that individual um, because I think like you said it could be very easy to kind of see someone as their diagnosis and see them as their behaviours and then not actually see how that fits for the individual and I imagine obviously this is all coming from assumptions for me but you know the bigger the team the harder it then is to connect with somebody on that personal level you know you you said kind of the teams could be 15 20 people and I can imagine all of those eyes onto one person um could be quite difficult to build that connection so I was just wondering you know from whether it was from doing the study or kind of your experience how you've been able to kind of develop that connection with with patients, maybe maybe David, you could expand. I think it's difficult. I the the other dilemma is, which I think I mentioned to to Lennon and Vanessa, is the other dilemma is that we also have to train the next generation of of staff. Mm. So sometimes you may have a trainee dietitian, a trainee family therapist, a trainee two, two or three trainee doctors, uh, a trainee social worker, trainee nurses all of them in the room too, you know, so that's suddenly almost like add a third or a double. So, and of course we ask, you know, we ask patients whether they, it's okay for them to be be there. And if they say no, then they, they leave. So that was the other dilemma is that we, we need to train people, um, which means that again adds to, to the number of people. Um, I, I think, you know, this is why it's such a good to have this podcast. And I think I think as clinicians, we need to think about water runs all the time. And we just sometimes, if I'm honest, get into the motion, we just do it. And, you know, it's one after the other. And, and we need to sometimes put in many patients per day. Um, but we need to stop and think and, you know, reduce it to the minimum number of people in the room. Um, and also the pe people who are really actively involved with the patient, you know. I think that's probably true for many, I assume units is that they try to think about this, but um, um, I think I think the formulation also helped the team to understand the patient. You know, it's so easy to see or to say we have 14 patients with anorexia, but actually they, they are completely unique. 
So you can't treat everybody the same because because they've got anorexia nervosa or, you know, because they're completely unique. So in that sense, I think the team needs to understand how each person is unique. Um, and hopefully that'll help the patient to feel understood and therefore perhaps trust the team more. Yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of acknowledging someone's individuality is so important. And I think um I think Vanessa, one of your findings from your study was about how important ward rounds are, but can be quite impersonal. And I wondered if you know what came from that in terms of to make it less impersonal from your study. Yeah, so um I was thinking when David spoke, it would be very quite nice to bring in the findings and see how it can inform like ha, uh, inform how we can improve the experience because like what Lynn and David were saying like what rounds are the place where important decisions are being made like whether people can go on to leave or whether they will be discharged sometimes um, but at the same time we know that it's quite impersonal because there are so many people in the room whether it was on screen or in person and sometimes that might be the only time where they see their consultant psychiatrist or um, like what Lynn was saying, this is the only ones that she saw the um, pharmacist. So this can feel quite impersonal. And for the patients, it can feel like these people only know me very briefly, but they are making very important life decisions um, and treatment decisions for me. Um, so that was something that was that felt quite prominent in terms of the themes and the findings of the study. So after um, in terms of after I um, got the findings and analysed it with Lynn together, we came up with a few kind of improvement initiatives. So one was um, really to make use of their named nurses because because named nurses are the ones who would spend the most time um, or yeah, like with the patients. And maybe if they were trained up to support the patients in the ward rounds and maybe help them to do like an agenda together in terms of what they can expect um, during ward rounds and if possible whether the name nurses or healthcare assistants who know the patients the best could also attend the ward rounds it could help with the impersonality kind of aspect of the ward round um, so that's kind of what I did afterwards where I did um, training session um, with the nurses in the ward um, informing them of the findings and what we thought about and then I also went to a patient community meeting and told them the findings I got and they agreed um, of the kind of improvement initiatives we came up with and they also kind of said that it would be nice to have an agenda sheet where it was given on a Sunday so the day before the ward round so then they can prepare for it in advance. Yeah yeah because I mean I can imagine that the there's quite a lot of anxiety around yeah. the ward rounds because that's going to be the time that you know either changes are going to be made to your treatment plan or um you know which can be I guess quite scary if, if you're thinking about weight restoration and maybe things are going to be boosted up there and I think that was another one of the findings that you had was around like the anxiety that comes with ward rounds and were the sort of interventions that you um suggested to reduce that anxiety were they similar to that impersonality or was were there additional things that you wanted to put in place yeah so um something were similar so for example the agenda because I think in one of the quotes in the paper um some of them mentioned there was this secret bag of things that they don't know whether they could access and so like it kind of reflects a, maybe people didn't have 
um, they didn't know what to expect really when it comes to water, especially like what Lynn was saying in the beginning, first few water rounds. Maybe after a while, they might get a hang of like what they could do or what they could ask for. Um, so then having an agenda would be helpful. And they also, we kind of thought about um, setting in terms of the ward timetable, because um, ward rounds are usually on a Monday. So they could kind of plan some more relaxing activities um, on a Monday evening or late afternoon where everyone can just chill um, and also maybe scheduling in one to one times with their name nurse on um, on the Monday to kind of like check in and see how they are feeling and how they are doing. But I think one thing that it was what came out quite strongly when I was analysing the um, actual CTM meeting transcripts was the idea of um, request. So people kind of use the words like um, request or I need to ask for this. So it really reflects the kind of power difference between the patients and the staff. And I felt like ward round is just one of the, it's not an isolated component. It kind of reflects the whole dynamic, the power dynamic between the patients and staff. And so like in some ways, even if we change the agenda sheets or um, we kind of train nurses to facilitate the ward rounds, it doesn't change the power difference um, massively. Like patients might feel they have more agency, but then the language they're using is still about, I need to ask for things or I need to request for things. When I was a, an inpatient, that was also the language used by staff. You know, I, I remember the dietitian asking me, well, have you got any requests this week? So, you know, that it's, it's yeah. It, the kind, I mean, that there there, ha, there is a power imbalance that you know you can't you can't get away from that. But um, I think I think when when because um, an eating disorder is very much about control, and I think possibly that's one of the things that I found hardest was I I went from um, working on a Monday to to having to I don't know ask if I could have. Um, a glass of water which I couldn't because I'd already had a glass of water um you know when I was when I was an inpatient on the Tuesday so I think I think that take it felt like a taking away of liberties so then you know which compounds uh, a certain power dynamic basically uh, yeah yeah it was really interesting because when I did the training session with the nurses they were quite they were all like quite not surprised but they were like oh yes actually they have been actually using these wordings without realizing they were perpetuating the power difference and but I agree with you Lynn that there is an inherent power difference but it's kind of again finding the balance like how to give agency to people but also acknowledging there would there will be power imbalance I just think it just highlights how important it is to, to involve patients, you know, in their care. And because we do things well-intentioned, but we may get it wrong, very wrong at times. And and just, you know, getting the feedback from patients in all aspects of the services that we deliver is, is so important. And even in research, um, because they bring important perspectives and they're actually on the receiving end of what we do. So it just highlights it's really important and good to hear from you know, Lena and again Vanessa's project. I just want to ask a question and I don't want this to come across in the wrong way. <laughs> um, this is coming solely from my personal experience of having an eating disorder. In the, I get the 
I kind of get the need, not the need for the power dynamic, but the sort of the reason why it's there. And my sort of thought is in the depths of an eating disorder, in my personal experience, I didn't know whether what I wanted was what Anne wanted or what the eating disorder wanted. And so then I just, I kind of think it is great to give somebody agency but how can we be sure that they want that for themselves and for them their health rather than their eating disorder? Because, you know, I don't want to be horrible, but my eating disorders are so manipulative. And as somebody that's had one, like my thoughts were like slush puppies. I had no idea what was what was Han and what was the eating disorder. So how how do you navigate that in that sort of area? Because you want to give somebody agency, you know, because they are a human being at the end of the day, but equally they've got this you know almost demon inside of their head trying to do everything against you it's interesting <laughs> what you said um Han about the the demon that's true but I do think I do think saying that's your eating disorder speaking was used a bit too liberally because sometimes I'm just in a bad mood <laughs> I don't particularly like that thing that is put in front of me um and then I'm told it's your eating disorder have you tried that you know have you tried that um food stuff that you're no I haven't okay well give it a go and then you let me know whether it's my eating disorder or actually that isn't very nice you know so so but I you know I agree it's 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 really hard because I think I mean, when I when I'm speaking about agency um yeah on the one hand I'm I'm kind of speaking about um doors being locked etc etc but I'm, I'm on the other hand I'm also speaking about um agency to to kind of shape their treatments or shape you know my treatment as it was um and it is tricky because well from my experience of, of being an inpatient it was it was in the first lockdown it was it was very kind of uncertain times you know heroically the um the you know the staff found a way of like making the treatment work um but for me I had a big big like hang up about when I was about to be discharged and I I hadn't been in my house for five months I hadn't been outside I hadn't been outside or off the grounds of the ward for five months you know how would I not crash and burn and I built it up so much in my my head um you know and eventually I did get um I did get some leave before I left but um, so, so I'm th thinking about agency like that, and as in, please listen to me. This is a real fear of mine, and even if you don't think it might happen, you know, deep down inside me, this fear is so big that that it's kind of inevitable that it won't go smoothly. Um, yeah. So, so that's the kind of agency I'm talking about. I think. Again, I think it just highlights how complicated this, it is because, you know, initially we also don't know the patient. So there's something about trust the other way and knowledge the other way, you know. So initially we may think, um, you know, this is just a fear food, but actually over time we learn that actually this person doesn't like that specific type of food or or brand or whatever. So, so I think initially we get it wrong because we don't know the patient and also we don't know whether we can trust them yet and then secondly it's complicated by the eating disorder you know voice and i think i think as 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 clinicians we can normally spot the eating disorder voice but of course we get it wrong at times 
so so that is also i think you know the challenge so it, it's complicated trying to get it right i think especially at the beginning then over time i think we get to know the person better the eating disorder better and and the unique presentations plus there's increasing trust and we can take what people say on face value and of course you know we should do that more but then if we do it and we get it wrong and the eating so we if we give into the eating disorder then of, of course things can go wrong so it's 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 challenging on both sides probably yeah i think what you just said there just really highlights to me you know the importance of all the things we've mentioned in terms of communication and trust and things like that you know really listening to the patient and really you know if somebody says I'm concerned about this like actually sitting down with them and trying to understand why they're concerned about it rather than just like you know oh that's just your eating disorder or whatever yeah. kind of, kind of we've, we've heard it before but actually you know it, it, it every mm. patient is unique so we've never heard it before because because everybody is, is different sure. Sure. Um, yeah and I think another theme that you had Vanessa was around differing goals for the World rounds, kind of team meetings, whatever we're going to call them, um, and I think that's quite interesting because I was kind of interested into as to what the differing goals were, like what you know the patients felt was most important compared to the clinicians and and how they aligned. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the areas is um, about the sharing of the formulation. So as you heard from David, the goal what the kind of service wanted to do was to move from a more formulation-based model um, and kind of having more psychological sort of input in ward rounds. So I kind of um, explored that with some of the patients and they were actually, some of them actually said to me, formulation is a very personal piece of work. Like they might kind of include their trauma history or different um, things that they wouldn't want to share with the wider team, especially when some of the team members were quite um, maybe like strangers to them, they would describe. So they wouldn't want it to be shared in those meetings, whereas the staff were pushing for a formulation to be shared. And sometimes also the, the goals of the ward round might be about um, taking leave and then the staff might be more focused on their weight and then using the weight as an indicator to see whether they could leave um take leave that week so there's been some i suppose difference in expectations and goals about ctms um we kind of like came to a bit of a consensus in some ways where how about how formulation can be shared so maybe it would be about sharing bits of the formulation that they feel comfortable with um in relation to their emission goals um but not the whole document in front of or the staff, but also when they do request or not use the word request, but if they do want leave, it might be about how that leave would um, be in service of their um, goals. So like whether it's about improving their interpersonal relationships or challenging some of their fears by going out to have a meal, for example, and kind of reframing it that way rather than um, saying, I want, uh, I'm requesting leave as an example. I have to say it was very weight driven or whether you'd stuck to your meal plan. I mean, I would say, you know, I I was kind of I'm a bit of a goody two shoes, so I did tend to stick to my meal plan. 
but you know going back to the agency issue the kind of disappointment set in at covid because as a patient as patients we felt that we were sticking to our side of the bargain if you like but there was nothing you know there was nothing that um we could have back because there was no like ground leave or or this or that or visitors or so yeah I, I say I, this is probably something you know, like you were mentioning, Vanessa, about reframing the the purpose for things rather than I want leave this weekend so I can just have a bloody weekend off. Um, to you know, I want leave this weekend because then I can work on this, that, and the other. Um, yeah, that I I say you know that's the ideal, um, but I think that you know limitations of of lockdown kind of stymied that for me really i think that um area like that part about covid um is really interesting because and and please excuse me if this if i'm taking this the wrong way from what you said but it almost sounds as though like sort of leave is dangled as a carrot in terms of like you know if you do this then you can get leave um i don't know whether that is I mean, I don't know whether it is dangled like a carrot or was, um, because, it, you know, we're talking about nearly three years ago. Um, maybe that is how, um, as, as patients, we spoke about it. I'm not sure whether that's how staff necessarily thought. I mean, there is or there was like a handbook and maybe this is where it stems from, because at each, um, at B each BMI point, you knew what you'd be allowed to do allowed you see i'm still using the terminology at certain bmi points so at this bmi point you can have 10 minutes ground leave a day at this bmi point you can have one overnight like leave so so i think you know it goes it goes deeper than language um i would say i would say that the system was pretty much built up on you reach this weight and then you can, you know, you're allowed to do this. So, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it wasn't specifically dangled like a carrot, but all the, all the um, um, indicators where this is what matters, you know. So, yeah. I find that really interesting as well. And again, if I'm making the wrong assumption here, please do just correct me. But. Um... I, I can imagine I've not been in an inpatient setting myself but I can imagine that there's quite a lot of comparison did you find sometimes that like you know if somebody was allowed to go and do something new um was it almost like oh that means that they've reached a another BMI point or oh, I mean there was there, yeah I mean all the time there was comparison I mean jealousy you know I I was jealous of people who had ground leave and I thought that is impossible. How come they've had ground leave? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can avoid that in, in a ward of um, perfectionists and, um, you know, judgmental as well. That's what comes with an eating disorder. Um, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a nice part of, <laughs> of, of being on the ward. But yeah. Again, I think this is really interesting, you know, because there's so much comparison, it's probably on balance better to have some criteria. And of course, the criteria were partly based on, you know, what is physically healthy, you know, so that people don't go, you know, on, for long walks if they're not physically ready for it yet. 
but but if you allow one person at a very low weight to go out and somebody else not on the, at a very high weight, then that that created you know its its own sort of challenges. So in that sense, I think we probably tried to have at least rules that everybody know what they are. And it's hard to know is that better than individual rules and then people challenge, but why why can they do it and I can't? So that is the challenge. I, I think you do need benchmarks, but again, yeah. it's, it's it's whether it was what my my mind wanted to see or whether it was reality, you know, these were the rules, there was no context around it. Um you know, yes, I was told, oh, you know, you're too ill to do this at the moment. Um but that didn't that didn't um, that didn't help my um, my feeling of of anger. Again, it's you know it was the eating disorder speaking, but the clinicians have to get through that that like anger, that eating disorder um, um, kind of I don't know um, the, the eating disorder mood, if you like, to be able to to kind of develop the trust with the patient. So. You know, I agree. You do need benchmarks, and um, but there needs to be more than that. I think. What's so interesting for me is that coming from a researcher's perspective, and then seeing or hearing what David and Lynn were saying, it kind of really echoed with my the research process as well. Because on one hand, I got the patients' experiences and them sharing their frustrations and their feelings and their thoughts. And on the other hand, I hear from the staff as well, maybe the limitations and constraints about the difficulties in maybe um, accepting or kind of um, agreeing to everything that the patient said. So then when we came up with the kind of improvement initiatives, it did feel like it's just like a tip of the iceberg, like CTM is not the only thing we need to change or talk about is the whole kind of ward culture, but also what are the realistic things we, I can change as a researcher is it seems not is quite minimal <laughs> from some perspective because there's always tension between staff and patients. Yeah, I was going to say that earlier, actually, I think that was like something I picked up on right at the start when you were saying about the study and that it's so brilliant to have the clinician's um, opinion and experience and also have the patient's but it's almost finding that happy medium of you know bringing both opinions and values which are equally as important because you know as staff you need to be able to function you need to be able to do your role to support somebody logistically on a ward but equally as a patient you know this is your life and you want to feel comfortable and safe and held and even in that like we've said so many times that approach is going to be so individualized as well so it's, it sounds you know good on you guys for taking on this project um but it it yeah I think like you said it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of kind of where where things need to go forward it's hard yeah I fully agree and I think again this is so so good that Vanessa did this project because there's actually not much written in the literature around clinical team meetings or, or ward rounds so hopefully this will trigger more debates and for other units to think about their sort of you know how they do things and why they do it and then perhaps do more more research on the whole topic i suppose but it's also true it's, it's part of the whole culture and how we do inpatient admissions um 
I mean, yeah. I, I guess part of it is to do with with funding, though, David, as in, you know, there's there's limited money to available. There's a growing need. What's the most cost efficient way of of treating? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. So, you know, we can do so much more with the right resources and funding. So sometimes we don't get things right because we're so under-resourced and, and stretched, you know. So so that's the other dilemma. How, how do you offer individualized care if you don't have enough staff for every person, you know? And and I think one of the problems is that it takes a long time. It takes a long time um, and it continually takes a long time. It, it's... So, so reaching a um, or kind of restoring to a healthy weight is just one thing. You've got the the months, the weeks, the years after that, um, where I mean, again, you know, I'm I'm not under any treatments now, but but I still have to do a lot of work and to, to kind of stay healthy. Um, but you know, my my time with treatments was. Yeah, it wasn't months. It was it was at least a year and a half of community treatments after that. Um, and I think I don't know. I mean, having the resources to to be able to offer to that that to to kind of everybody is quite tricky. I'm not saying it's right. It's it's far from right. Um, but you know, I I saw people who who um, fellow patients. This was their second. This was their third. This was their fourth admission so you know surely that isn't um that isn't cost effective either um but that's a whole different um conversation yeah yeah i guess bringing back to the research findings as you kind of might have seen on the table in terms of who was present in the ctm there was no psychologist who um uh attended the ctm um when i was observing so there was it was an MDT, there was a nurse, there was dietitian, there was psychiatrist, but then there was no psychology. So basically it, it's an MDT, but also not an multidisciplinary team because it kind of like one aspect of the input. And that's again, might be back to resources or there are lots of reasons, but it also is like a limitation in terms of um, how we can create changes because if one profession was actually missing, what would that mean in terms of the content of the CTM, for example? I think, um, I think the point there that you've made about the resources is obviously, I mean, it's something that we've spoken a lot about on the podcast and, you know, it's very apparent that everybody working in eating disorders is so passionate and really wants to provide that best treatment that the resources just aren't there. But what you were saying, Glenn, about it being people's third, fourth, you know, whatever inpatient admission, you know, obviously we're not here to talk about community treatment, but I think there is a a massive need as well for that sort of handover from the inpatient team that supports somebody to then the community team. And because I think in my eyes, the, the inpatient admission tends to be to get somebody weight restored and, and back to sort of a healthy weight. And then the maybe community work is more when recovery actually kicks in when you start building those coping mechanisms and and things like that with all the cognitive work but to have a really clear handover there so that that can be productive so that people aren't sort of running almost back to the inpatient setting that you know you might feel more held or kind of 
I don't really know how somebody might feel. Um, but there must be a reason why somebody is obviously going back. Maybe they're deteriorating because they've not been able to put things into place in their home as they were doing in the hospital. Good to hear what Glenn thinks. Um, you know, I think that was exactly the, the, one of the things we wanted to change in Oxford was that we wanted to acknowledge that psychological treatment is a, is a key part of recovery for, from an eating disorder. So we wanted to, you know, there's this idea that you go into hospital to weight restore, sort of focus on the, the body, but not the mind. Whereas actually we, you know, we gave an intensive psychological treatment to many patients. Um, I think Vanessa's right. So by the time she did the study, um, there wasn't anybody in post. Um, <clears throat> but many patients before that had, you know, very intensive psychological treatment, which then I think continued in the community team. And, and that was, we, we've seen the best outcomes for those patients who had effectively seamless psychological and, you know, physical health monitoring and treatment across the pathway. So, you know, ideally start with psychological treatment in the community, then almost get more intensive psychological treatment as an inpatient. And that continues then with a good handover um, in the community. So, I think yours was fairly seamless, Len. Would you agree, or how how did you experience your therapy across the pathway? I would say it was seamless. Yeah, I would say um, I would say if I hadn't have had the the kind of foundations of it as an inpatient, then um, coming back home would have been really really difficult. I mean, it was it was difficult, um, but in a different way in different ways than I imagined. But I think. I think kind of the success rate, my success rate might have been um, lower had I not had the the grounding in an inpatient setting um, because because you have, I mean, to, to use Han's word, which I really like, is, is held. So you have your session with with um, psych, psychologist or, or whoever, and then that does bring up lots of feelings afterwards which can um usually kind of show themselves in in certain behaviors so if i were and i live by myself if i were by myself at home you know going through all the, the beginnings of the psychological treatment then it would have been really difficult not to act out um and also you know kind of having some tools about um how to how to continue eating regularly, how to have all your meals, how to have all your snacks. Um, and, you know, without like even going through those, they're not even coping mechanisms, they're kind of staying safe mechanisms and understanding why you need to do that and understanding what could possibly try to take you off course. You know, unless you've got that already from from being an inpatient, then, then it's really difficult to to kind of to, to to be I think you need to be as robust as you as you can possibly be um after you've had inpatient treatment I mean what one thing I did want to mention about um when I said about kind of patients who were on their second third fourth I mean that I don't know whether this has changed but there were like two pathways so one was a crisis which is I think it was a determined predetermined six weeks and then there's full recovery, which was what I was on because nobody told me about the, the kind of crisis admission, which I probably would have opted for had I had the choice. Um, but not in retrospect, if you see what I mean. Um, so there is 
it is it, there's, there's a kind of a, a really kind of pull there isn't there because you opt to go in for a crisis admission you know you know in advance when the six weeks is over and when your kind of get out of jail free card is up so so to me it doesn't really it, it saves somebody from um serious illness stroke death sometimes um but it doesn't really incentivize you to to kind of you know go for like full weight restoration full recovery um Yeah, and just to say, so we, we did some research on the two pathways. So the one pathway was for patients who did not want to recover and effectively came in to be medically stabilized. Um, and so they typically would be partly partially weight restored for about six to eight weeks and then discharged. But, but you know, the outcomes for those patients were very poor. And most of them, frankly, became it's a horrible term, but revolving door patients. So partly weight restored, discharge back in six to eight months, um, again and again and again. Um, so although we initiated that pathway, you know, when we started the whole project, we, after two or three years, realized that, you know, the pathway is very poor success and actually full weight restoration. And, and we've, there are now, I think, at least five or six studies that have showed this, that full weight restoration is, is a key part of the recovery from an eating disorder. So it's very difficult to be malnourished and not think about food and, and you know, so the eating disorder being in a state of starvation actually keeps the eating disorder going because you're constantly thinking all about food. You can't live your life freely. But obviously weight restoration is just hard, you know, that's only a small part of it. So it's an essential part, but it's not, you know, you still need to do the the psychological work around self-esteem, perfectionism, the traumas, body image, uh, the, all the rules that you've had in the past, etc. Yeah, and I feel like in order, I think it's really important what you've highlighted there in terms of they're both equally important and that in order to do that psychological work and to, to build a better foundation with self-esteem and things like that, ultimately you need to be in a nourished place. Um, because otherwise, you know, all you're thinking about is food and exercising and losing weight. And I'm not saying that once you get weight restored, that those thoughts go away, but at least there's a little bit more to sort of work with um, there. So I guess just to finish us off um, from all the kind of research that you did, how, what do you hope that will happen for ward rounds now? You know, is this something that's just happening in Oxford or do you think, has this research kind of been distilled in other hospitals as well? Yeah, so I presented it in one of the conference, eating disorder conferences, and there were some other services who were interested in the study, um, which was great because I think at the moment when I was doing the research, there was almost no research I could find that was um, specifically looking at ward rounds in eating disorder settings. And in general, there I feel like when compared to outpatient and community treatments, inpatient research is very neglected, I would say, in um, in comparison. So I think I would really hope that more research and services are um, pay attention to ward rounds and inpatient um, experience in general. So it's not just Oxford where like who was thinking about it. Um, and I will also say, like what I said before, what round is just one component, but the whole maybe issue lies in the whole like inpatient treatment in general. Um, 
and so it really needs to be researched more and pay like people need to kind of pay attention to that a lot more because there were lots of people who end up being in hospitals and not having very positive experience but there were also people who have positive experience so it's just kind of learning from people in general gosh this is yeah I, I would say I mean you know one of the motivations was to kind of help um a, a team who'd really helped me um so and I would hope I would hope I would hope um whatever work goes forward would would help um patients kind of find their reason to to kind of get get better if you like find their motivation and and part of what what helps that is is kind of seeing a, a process that works trusting a process that works and trusting the team um that that delivers it and you know one of those things is is the the kind of ward round so yeah that's that's probably what, what i'll say on that front I think I would say, I think you've both highlighted, you know, it's just one of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but we probably need to think and stop and think about the whole pathway, whether it's outpatients, community, how you go into the inpatient unit, what you receive on the inpatient unit, and then, the, you, you know, what happens after discharge and how we do handover. So, so there's something about thinking about the whole process and every step of the way that patients experience on the pathway, but then also about the content, you know, so it's also not just what you experience in terms of the process, but also what you actually receive. So our outcomes improved significantly when we started to, to offer, you know, a model that was evidence-based, so cognitive behavioral therapy, but as a whole team, rather than everybody doing their own preferred model. So I think that that is important. <clears throat> I think it just highlights again how important service user and patient involvement is. You know, so it's absolutely crucial that we get feedback and that, and that Patients like Lynn are part of how we change our services, develop our services, and even the research. So, yeah, so well done for, for Vanessa too, too, and for including Lynn in the whole process. And again, you know, it's it's so special to be publishing an article with an ex-patient. You know, I mean, <clears throat> what can be better in the world than to, 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 to be co-publishers on an article that we've worked together on, you know, after, you know, after the person was in the service historically. So so that is also very special. And then to do a podcast together. So how special is that? Yeah, thank you to you, Lynn. But also I would like to thank all the other patients who were involved as well. So when I first started this project, um, there was a patient um, eating disorder patients forum that I went to to talk about my idea of the project and whether they felt that was a meaningful project to do. So it's I'm really grateful that they gave me some feedback and to kind of like some reassurance as well that it was relevant and it would be meaningful. And then I actually had another um, former patient who helped me in the beginning of the study before Lynn joined. Um, before Lynn joined me in terms of like doing the data analysis together and then thinking about the service improvement strategy. So that was like I've got a whole team of former patients helping me out in my doctorate. I'm really grateful to them. No, it sounds fantastic. I think you've done really great work. And, you know, like you said, the importance of getting patients involved in that and understanding their perspective, I think is probably a massive element that's maybe been missed before. Um, kind of just, you know, assuming that something's going to be right 
Um, but also, um, David, what you said about everybody being on the same page. Um, I think that's what I was going to mention earlier, the importance of, you know, I can imagine if one person comes in with one type, you know, sometimes it's great to do lots of different types of therapies, um, depending on the presentation and stuff. But, you know, you really need that kind of basis of everybody kind of, you know, singing from the same um, hymn sheet and, and having the same goals for 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 the patient so yeah I think you've highlighted some really important things so thank you all so much for joining me um it's been an absolute pleasure and like I said it's so special to kind of get everyone's opinions rather than just one person who wrote the paper so I hope you have enjoyed yourself as much as I have yeah, thanks. Thanks, it was great. Thank thanks for having us. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.